Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It's the most common nightmare. Who hasn't been jolted from their sleep by the feeling of falling uncontrollably? Maybe it's the sensation of falling that you don't like. For many, it's the fear of what happens when you hit the ground that's really unpleasant. The farther up you are, well, the worse the landing can be. Maybe you're skydiving and your parachute doesn't open. Maybe you're on a plane where the engines have stopped working. Maybe you were taking a romantic hot air balloon trip and an errant bird went right through the silk. Whatever the reason, you now find yourself plummeting to the earth. Is there anything you can do to increase your chance of survival? First, if you can, aim for something soft to land on. A tree, a pile of snow, maybe slow down your descent by bouncing off some power lines. Landing on water sounds like a good idea, but isn't the best. It only works if you go in straight. Belly flopping at terminal velocity does not work. Given you often get knocked out when you land, it would not be good to drown after surviving that kind of fall. Second, and this might seem obvious, don't land on your head. Apparently, there is a lot of debate among scientists about the best way to land. Some say on your feet and let your legs absorb the shock. Some say on your back because the body is best able to take the g-force from the front to the back. Despite this disagreement, they all agree that landing on your head is the wrong way. In an interview with NPR, Rhett Elaine, an associate professor of physics, said that experimental evidence on the subject of surviving a significant fall is pretty weak. According to Elaine, it's apparently unethical to throw people out of an airplane in the name of science. But there are a few outliers whose adventures can be studied. An unlucky lucky few who have managed to survive falls from thousands of feet. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Flight attendant Vesna Volovich wasn't supposed to be on JAT flight 367. The flight was flying from Stockholm to Belgrade with stopovers in Copenhagen and Zagreb. The airline had mistaken 22-year-old Vesna for another flight attendant also named Vesna. On the morning of January 25, 1972, she was on board when the plane landed in Denmark for an overnight layover. She'd never been there before, and it was a new European destination to discover. The next day, Flight 367 departed Copenhagen Airport at 3.15 p.m., bound for Zagreb. Less than an hour into the flight, at 4.01 p.m., and at an altitude of 33,330 feet, an explosion tore through the plane's baggage compartment. 
Explosives in a suitcase had detonated, causing the aircraft to be ripped apart high above the former Czechoslovakia. The cabin suddenly depressurized. Everyone on board was blown out of the aircraft into sub-freezing temperatures and fell to their deaths. The fuselage plummeted thousands of feet onto a wooded and snow-covered hill, landing at an angle. One firefighter on the scene later told the New York Times, quote, I heard a sound like military jets landing. I looked up to the sky and saw bodies, suitcases, chunks of the plane falling down. Out of the 28 passengers and crew, Vesna was the only survivor. A villager heard her screams coming from the wreckage. He found her inside the fuselage. So, was it luck that spared her, or something else? Most likely, it was probably a bit of both. As the plane disintegrated and fell, Vesna was pinned in place by a catering trolley. Investigators believe this is what saved her, by keeping her in the fuselage as the plane fell to the earth. Also, Vesna had low blood pressure. Because of this, she lost consciousness when the cabin depressurized. This likely prevented her heart from bursting on impact. If you think this episode is about people who fell 30,000 feet and then got up and walked away, you're wrong. Vesna spent almost half a year in a hospital, including weeks in a coma. She suffered significant and serious injuries and was not expected to survive. She had a fractured skull and brain hemorrhage, a fractured pelvis, broken ribs, both legs broken, and her back broken in three places. One vertebra was crushed completely, resulting in temporary paralysis from the waist down. Miraculously, Vesna came out of her coma, and perhaps luckily, she had no memory of the hour leading up to the crash until a month after she'd regained consciousness. She underwent several surgeries to regain the use of her legs. Her recovery was gradual and encouraging, but it would never be complete. However, she proved the doctors wrong, and ten months after the crash, she was walking. Sure, she had a limp, but given the extent of her injuries, her recovery was incredible. In later interviews, Vesna attributed her recovery to her, quote, Serbian stubbornness. Vesna became a national hero and a symbol of resilience. She was decorated by the Yugoslav president and was made an honorary citizen of the village where the crash occurred. Authorities later suspected that a Croatian separatist group seeking independence from Yugoslavia was responsible. Almost a year after the accident, Vesna decided it was time to get back to work. The airline felt it was in their best interest for her to have a role where she'd be out of the public eye. She was given an office job, negotiating freight contracts, hardly the high-flying career that she had originally signed up for. Despite this professional setback, Vesna continued to fly regularly as a passenger. She had no fear of being in the air. In 1985, she was recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as the record holder for surviving the highest fall without a parachute. Vesna later told reporters that while she didn't think of the infamous crash often, she struggled with survivor's guilt. She tried to have an optimistic outlook on life, saying, quote, If you can survive what I survived, you can survive anything. Towards the end of her life, she told the New York Times, I don't know what to say when people say I was lucky. Life is so hard today. If I were lucky, I would never have had this accident. Not all epic falls are accidental. Some falls, or jumps, should we say, are not only intended, but are months in the planning. 
In the opening ceremony of the 2012 London Summer Olympics, actor Daniel Craig, as James Bond, escorted the Queen to the proceedings. The pair made their way to the Olympic Stadium in a helicopter and parachuted in, the Queen still clutching her signature handbag. And the highlight was a pre-recorded sequence involving the Queen and James Bond actor Daniel Craig, which saw them leave Buckingham Palace in a helicopter, which then appeared in real time above the Olympic Stadium. Of course, this wasn't actually the Queen. It was British skydiver, ex-paratrooper, professional stuntman, and base jumper Gary Connery. While the stunt at the Olympics made him a household name, it was nothing compared to what he'd done just a few months before. Gary Connery had a long career as a Hollywood stuntman, but in May 2012, the 42-year-old wanted to push his limits and do something that had never been done before. He wanted to make the world's highest jump without a parachute. He'd been jumping for almost 20 years by that point and was incredibly experienced. He had jumped from famous monuments such as the Eiffel Tower, the London Eye, and the Tower Bridge, but his plan sounded more like a death wish than a new professional challenge. The secret to his successful jump relied on two things. One was what he wore during the jump. He helped design a unique type of wingsuit that would act like a parachute. Second was what he was going to land on, namely a carefully arranged stack of cardboard boxes. Gary had complete faith in the ability of the cardboard boxes to absorb the impact of his landing. After all, he had done this many times before as part of his stunt work. However, he'd never fallen from almost half a mile above the ground, at a speed of 80 miles per hour. The landing strip, or box grid, was constructed using 18,600 cardboard boxes, all of different sizes. The boxes were not cheap either. According to Popular Mechanics, Gary shelled out a whopping $35,000. Gary Connery trained for weeks leading up to the jump. If he wanted to land on a pile of cardboard boxes 350 feet in length, 45 feet wide, and 12 feet tall, he needed to coordinate his jump perfectly. He told the Independent he was feeling 100% confident. Quote, One side of my brain is saying, what on earth are you doing? But the other side is saying, you know you can do this. He went on to say, quote, There's something special about overcoming fears. When you complete a stunt and the job is done, a feeling of euphoria builds up inside of you. It feels like, if you can imagine, a crushing blow, but in a really nice way. I suppose it's adrenaline, but I don't want to be labeled an adrenaline junkie. The next day, May 23, 2012, Gary boarded a helicopter and ascended to an altitude of 2,400 feet above his hometown of Henley-on-Thames, about 40 miles outside of London. Unfortunately, there was a bit of wind that day, which could prove challenging as he winged his way to the landing site. As terrifying as it sounds, he planned on landing head first. He wore a neck brace as a precaution, but this did not eliminate the risk of a neck injury. As a backup, he wore a parachute, but hoped he wouldn't need to use it. The big moment arrived, and Gary Connery jumped. He fell for three seconds before his wingsuit inflated. The design of the suit allowed him to control his glide as he plummeted toward the ground. Around a hundred people gathered near the landing area. As Gary approached, the headwind tossed him around, but he was able to recover in time. It was a bit wobbly from time to time. As you can imagine, there were some issues with the winds up there in Henley-on-Thames, but he managed to get the suit under control, and this is what he did next. 
After 30 seconds, Gary emerged triumphantly from the pile of cardboard boxes. The entire jump was over in less than a minute. He told the Sunday Times that despite the turbulence, the landing was, quote, soft and comfortable. Also telling the BBC, I feel incredible, just completely elated. I have been training and planning for this record attempt for many years now, and I am so proud to have achieved a world first. He went on to say, Tonight will be all about celebrating with friends and family. Tomorrow, I will be plotting my next daring challenge. It's been an amazing experience and, you know, it was so comfortable, so soft. My calculations have obviously worked out and I'm glad they did. Gary Connery's makeshift box setup is now being studied by scientists. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. World War II was the first war where air combat was a major component. The U.S. is estimated to have lost almost 23,000 planes, the U.K. 22,000, and the Soviet Union lost over 88,000 during combat. Each of those countries had an incredible story of survival from astronomical heights. On January 3, 1943, Alan McGee's B-17 Flying Fortress was on a bombing run over France. His turret had been hit by German fire, which had also damaged his parachute. A second hit took out the wing, and the plane plummeted in a spin right out of a movie. McGee blacked out due to lack of oxygen and was thrown from the plane. Unconscious, he fell four miles. Four miles. 22,000 feet. Rapidly approaching the ground, he crashed through the glass roof of the Saint-Nazaire railroad station. This slowed him down enough that he survived his impact on the floor of the station. He was severely wounded, with broken bones, damage to his face, lungs, kidneys, and his right arm was almost severed. McGee regained consciousness in a first aid station before he was taken to a German hospital. He was a prisoner of war, where he remained until he was liberated in 1945. In 1995, McGee returned to Saint-Nazaire, where he saw the glass roof for the first time. He remarked, quote, I thought it was much smaller. Soviet Air Force Lieutenant Ivan Chizov has the honor of being the person who survived the second highest fall in history, just eking out Alan McGee at 23,000 feet. In January 1942, German fighters attacked his bomber. Chizov was the first of his crew to bail out. The battle was going on all around him, and he was concerned that if he opened his parachute, he would be an easy target for the Germans, so he wanted to wait until he was below the dogfight. Unfortunately, the air was so thin that he passed out first. 
he hit the ground at an estimated speed between 120 and 150 miles per hour. But in a stroke of luck, he landed at the edge of a snow-covered ravine. He rolled down the side and reached the bottom unconscious, but alive. His descent was seen by other soldiers who ran to his rescue. Chizov suffered severe injuries, but recovered quickly and amazingly was back in the cockpit three months later. Allied squadrons take the air for another great battle over Europe, tempting the Luftwaffe aloft so as to get at their fighters in combat. Bomber formations hold course while their escorts of long-range Thunderbolts, Lightnings and Mustangs cut loose among the German interceptors. Vivid pictures from the dogfights fought deep above the heart of Nazi Europe. The escapades of British Flight Sergeant Nicholas Alchemade pale versus Chizov and McGee. He only survived a fall of 18,000 feet. On the night of March 24, 1944, Alchemade's Lancaster bomber was returning from a raid on Berlin when it was attacked. The plane caught fire and spun out of control. Alchemade's parachute was destroyed. He made the impossible decision to jump and die rather than burning to death in the plane. That choice ultimately saved his life. He landed on a group of pine trees, which slowed his descent. The ground was covered in snow, creating a soft cushion. Incredibly, all he suffered was a sprained ankle. He was captured by the Germans, who didn't believe his story until they found the wreckage and his damaged and unused parachute inside. Nicholas Alchemade was liberated in 1945. On Christmas Eve 1971, Julianne Kupka and her mother boarded a small turboprop plane. It was bound from Lima, Peru to a small airport in the Amazon jungle. The Kupkas were well-known zoologists who ran a research station that studied wildlife. 17-year-old Julianne had just graduated from high school on December 23rd, and she and her mother wanted to spend Christmas with her father. The flights were all booked, except for Lanza, Flight 508. Lanza had recently lost two planes in crashes. Julianne later told CNN, We knew the airline had a bad reputation, but we desperately wanted to be with my father for Christmas so we figured it would be all right. It was a short flight, just under an hour, door to door. Everything was fine for the first half of the flight. Then Julianne said they flew into dark clouds and the plane started to shake. There was heavy turbulence. Luggage fell from the overhead bins and started to bounce around the cabin. And then the lightning started. The passengers on the plane started to cry and scream. Julianne said she and her mother held hands. Then there was a bright light outside the plane. Julianne said her mother calmly said, quote, That's the end. It's all over. An investigation would later find that lightning hit one of the fuel tanks, which tore the wing off. The plane went into a nosedive. People were screaming, and the engines were roaring. The plane had disintegrated two miles up. Julianne told the BBC, Suddenly, the noise stopped, and I was outside the plane. And I remember clearly that I felt completely alone in that moment. I was in a free fall, strapped to my seat bench, 
and hanging head over heels and I remember the whispering of the wind that was the only noise. Julianne said she saw the jungle canopy spinning beneath her, and then she passed out. She does not remember landing. She credits her survival to being attached to her seat. Perhaps the seat cushioned her fall and absorbed some of the impact. Perhaps it acted as a parachute and slowed her descent. Julianne also noted that where she landed had thick foliage, which also likely played a role in her survival. She awoke half a day later with only minor injuries a broken collarbone, a ruptured ligament in her knee, cuts on her arms and legs, and a concussion. What was the first conscious thought that you had after the impact? Well, I awoke next day. That happened at midday. And next day at 9 o'clock, I awoke and I had a look into the canopy of that jungle. And the first thought I had was, I survived an air crash. Although I had a severe concussion and also a deep shock, I was aware of what had happened to me. For most people, this would be the pinnacle of the story. But Julianne's story was not even close to being over. She was in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, alone. There were 91 people aboard Flight 508, and she could see none of them near her. She heard planes above searching for the wreckage, but the dense jungle canopy prevented her from seeing them. Julianne had spent much time in the rainforest and didn't consider it as scary as many of us might. I spent one and a half year with my parents before the crash on a small biological research station, and there I learned a lot about life in the rainforest, how to behave there, and I learned that it's not so dangerous as often told, and that's not the green hell all the world always thinks. Mind you, she wasn't exactly equipped for it. She was wearing a sleeveless mini-dress and was left with only one shoe. She normally wore glasses because she was quite short-sighted, but she lost them in the crash. So, in order to move around, she used her one shoe to test the ground for snakes. She found a small creek and knew from her father to follow it downstream. He said if you find a creek, follow it, because that will lead to a stream and a stream will lead to a bigger river, and that's where you'll find help. She also knew that walking in water was safer. Julianne's walk to rescue lasted 10 days. Her only food was a bag of candy she found at the crash site. The weather was hot and wet during the day and cold at night. Her wounds had become infested with parasites. She saw crocodiles and piranha. On that tenth day, she came across a small boat and a hut. She was so hungry that she could barely stand and thought she was hallucinating. The boat, however, was real, and she stayed there, hoping to be rescued. The next day, a group of Peruvian lumberjacks found her. When she heard them talking, she said it was like hearing the voices of angels. Understandably, the men were startled to see her. First they said nothing, they stopped alarmed when they saw me, they, uh, in the first moment they thought that I was a kind of water goddess, because there exists a, a, a 
creature. It's a mixture of a river dolphin and a blonde, white-skinned woman. And as I am blonde, uh, they, in the first moment, didn't know what to say. But fortunately, I speak very well Spanish, and I introduced myself to them, and I told them that I crashed with a Lanza plane, and then they approached immediately to me, and uh, later on two more men came out of uh, the rainforest, and there were five, and uh, they treated my my wounds and gave me to eat, and so we passed the night there, and next day, very early in the morning, they brought me back to civilization. The next day, she was reunited with her father. After weeks of searching the forest, Julianne was Lanza Flight 508's only survivor. is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.